Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Job Hunter podcast. This week we will bang the gavel and cross-examine our guest as we discuss the ins and outs of being a criminal barrister. From wearing funny wigs to courses in advanced arguing, we will discuss what it takes to become a lawyer in the UK as well as debunking some popular movie myths. So as always, grab your favourite beverage, as long as you're not driving, kick back, relax and let's get on with the show. to say we'll be discussing what happens if you ever unfortunately find yourself in court. I'll be hoping that this interview will pass sentence and I don't end up serving life for my terrible puns. I'm delighted to welcome my guest this week to the Job Hunter podcast, Joanne Toomey. Joe, maybe you could start off by telling us exactly what is a barrister and what is the difference between a barrister and a solicitor? Oh, this is a good first question. I've answered this question many times in interviews. Um, A barrister is a lawyer so they're legally qualified and they are the person who stands up in court and argues a case so the solicitor does most of the prep work and a lot of the client handling so they'll kind of do witness statements and the kind of litigation running up to trial and then they will instruct the barrister um, just before trial They'll send over all the documents um, about the case and the barrister then takes on the case and argues that in court. Interesting. So what's the difference between a barrister and a solicitor advocate? Ah, okay. So there's not a huge difference. So solicitor advocates have rights of audience before a judge. So a solicitor advocate can um, present a case in court like a barrister, but um, solicitor advocates aren't trained in the same way. So the bar is seen as kind of the gold standard of advocacy, um, whereas solicitor advocates are solicitors and then they just get the rights to do some of the lower levels cases. You'll never have a solicitor advocate in the Supreme Court, for example. So did you always know you wanted to work in the legal profession or is it something that you came to a bit later in life? Um, no, I, I knew from pretty young that I liked to argue. That may come as a surprise to you. I knew that I liked to argue and I knew that I had quite a strong sense of what at least I considered was right and wrong. Um, and I liked the kind of academic rigor as well as the advocacy. So I, I almost looked at what I enjoyed and looked what I was quite passionate about. And that fell pretty squarely within you know the frame of a barrister so I, I did know from quite young what I wanted to do. Is it arguing or is it trying to convince someone around to your point because they're two very different things aren't they? Um, it's a bit of both so I've given kind of a, a very narrow view of what a barrister does in uh, their day-to-day but barristers are often involved in negotiations, um, settlement meetings, mediations, adjudications, all of the shuns and um, so you have to use those different skills at different times so sometimes it is 
trying to convince someone around your point of view. Other times it might be a very academic argument or a strict application of the law. Um, so it is kind of all, all of the above and then you use those skills when appropriate at different times. So what's your Latin like? Is it, is it any good now? No, because you're not supposed to use Latin because you're supposed to be able to translate these concepts down to kind of, you know, Joe Public. So no, do not test me in any Latin. I will quit the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so what exactly is involved to becoming a barrister? It's not a case of you just rock up to a pub and they go, here's, here's your certificate when you reach the bar, is it? That's a terrible pun again. That one was really bad. Meet you at the bar. <laughs> um, yeah, no, there's quite a few years of training, um, although I appreciate you just had some doctors on, so it's not as many years training as doctors. It's... Um, if you go kind of directly through, then you will do a law degree. Um, I did a three-year law degree. And then the one-year bar course, it's called the BPTC, the Bar Professional Training Course. Um, you do that for one year and then you are called to the bar. Um, and that's basically where one of, your, one of the inns of courts, um, which are kind of the professional home of all barristers, um, they call you to the bar and it's at that point on that day where you officially become a barrister. You get to it's all the scraggly old uh, wig and that's, that's that then. Yeah. Well, I mean, so uh, you're, I obviously, I, I have my wig. Um, and I was like, yeah, stunning. Great. Gonna wear my wig. And then the area of law that I do, you don't actually wear your wig unless you're in a really senior court. So there's pretty much no chance of me wearing my wig anytime soon. So um, what is the area of law you do? What is the different areas of law? So I do mainly um, employment and personal injury. I do kind of dabble in advisory work for other stuff, but that's kind of broadly where I sit. But there's loads of different areas of law. There's criminal law, there's family law, there's commercial law, there's arbitration, there's shipping, there's, you know, there's, there's tax, there's family, what have I missed? There's wills and probate. So you can basically just go on and on and on about different areas of law. Um, and... Uh, I, yeah, I do personal injury and employment where you don't really get to wear your wigs unless you're in the high court or above. But criminal, for example, um, some of my peers that um, went to the criminal bar, they, you know, they stick a wig on you and you're in there every day rocking your wig. So I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Suits. It's a great um, TV series. Um, how obviously you, you don't deal with corporate side, corporate side of law, but how would you say that depicts lawyers? I know that's in the American system, but is, is that a fair representation of, of, of the legal proceedings? No, shockingly, the hit drama uh, is not an accurate portrayal. Um, it, so you're right, it's a completely different. So most American dra legal dramas like, you know, The Good Wife, Suits, love them all. They are literally my guilty pleasure, but they are so far from reality. They might as well be science fiction. Um, the legal system's entirely different. So in the UK, we've got um, a distinction between barristers and solicitors. They don't draw that distinction in America. So that's why you'll see kind of the lawyers doing both the preparatory paperwork, the negotiating, and then they'll turn up and talk in court. And we just don't, we don't do that. Um, but also the kind of 
really, I would say, merging of ethical lines would be putting it very, very um, politely. That's not that's not okay, obviously, and that's not done. There's a really high ethical standard that all barristers have to adhere to, you know, not just because we regulate it, but because it's the right thing to do. You know, you can't, my first duty, so when you sit your bar ethics exam, which is a huge portion of the bar exams, it, it is, you have to learn your primary duties to the court and that's not to mislead the court. So Harvey Specter, stunning though he is, to binge watch is not um, the oracle of uh, the UK bar. <laughs> so now you're going to tell me that that the judge doesn't get to bang the gavel. No one shouts, oh, <laughs> and no one shouts. You can't handle the truth in a court. Yeah, no, sadly. Now pop my balloon. Yeah, no, sorry about that. My first trial, I did try and stand up. I object. No, I didn't. Obviously, no, that doesn't happen. I mean, I can't speak. These these are obviously very American stereotypes. So sadly, in the UK, the judge doesn't have a gavel and nobody's banging a gavel. There's no kind of and equally people aren't in the crowds, you know, shouting up. And one of my favorite myths on these things is when someone walks in with like this silver bullet piece of evidence and they're like, oh, this is it. And, you know, they don't have to disclose it. And there's no rules of getting the evidence in. And, you know, someone can literally just hand a file you know from the back of the courtroom and it's just allowed in and so no I mean it's it's all a farce and a lie but I'm I, I'm realized that your face is now dropping as I'm kind of bursting all of your legal drama bubbles yeah I, I feel like I'm gonna have to watch all these series back with a bit of cynicism and and, and reevaluate my life but uh but there we go um what would what would you say like an average day looks like if you are in court and um you know follow up how how would you put someone's mind at ease if they were going to court for the first time so i mean going to court there's so many different ways in which you can go to court so in what i deal with you're usually either bringing a claim or having a claim brought against you or you're a witness to someone else's claim um all of which are quite nerve-wracking because inevitably you're going to be on the stand so you're going to and, and, and when i say on the stand i mean sometimes in the courtrooms that i'm in they're literally it's no bigger than my study and the stand is a chair in the corner so <laughs> it's not always that fancy but you're going to be on the stand you're going to be under oath you're going to have affirmed um, that you're going to tell the truth and then you're going to have some stranger come and cross-examine you for however long and basically tell you know tell you you're not credible or at times you're lying or you're mistaken or that cannot be right and you're going to be scrutinized and every word you say is going to be held against you I mean it's quite I'm making it sound maybe worse than it is but it's quite an ordeal coming to court for someone who's never done it before and normally these people have got quite a lot riding on it so in an employment tribunal it's you know someone's job or income or reputation or if they've been discriminated against it's um you know there's some very meaningful things that they're giving evidence on um and then on the flip side when i'm doing personal injury these are people that have had you know uh, sometimes very serious injuries and you know their compensation is going to depend on whether or not this judge believes them or you know the quality of their evidence uh, so no nobody really enjoys coming to court except the barristers <laughs> 
I was going to say, which do you prefer? Do you prefer prosecuting or defending? So I don't. I, so I don't prosecute so I, because I'm not criminal. But I would. I would. I act for both the claimant and the defendant. Or in the employment tribunal, there's no defendant; they're a respondent. I act for both, and I really find that it depends on the case. So, if, for example, in the employment tribunal, if you've got someone that's clearly been discriminated against, or unfairly dismissed, or something of that nature. I feel so passionately that I'm so glad that I'm working for this person, you know, to really right this wrong that is, you know, a society-wide terrible. And then for this individual, it's had such a huge impact on their life. And then you flip it the other way around. And if you've got, you know, some kind of um, rogue claimant bringing a case against this kind of, you know, small startup and they can't afford it. And, you know, you feel really sorry when you don't quite buy the allegations. So I think it depends on the case. You can feel like a bit of a hero and also a bit of a villain, depending on the facts of each case. I sometimes don't feel that fantastic when it's one insurance company fighting another insurance company. That doesn't really heal my soul, but it does pay my rent. So... And um, when you were kind of first starting out, how did you cope with that feeling when you left the courtroom, whether or not you won or you lost? And, and how do you kind of control your emotions in that sense and just separate the two out, really? It's tough. I have to say it's tough because you're always told that you're, you know, you're there and you owe a duty to the court and you're there as an advocate, not, you know, you're not giving your own view. That's why if ever you see anyone in court, they're making submissions. They're not, you know, giving their view. You don't say to the judge, in my opinion, it's this or my view is that because I'm not really there to give a view. I'm there to kind of articulate the argument best so that the judge can make a determination. Um, so I guess you kind of get around any you know, you say, look, I'm there to do a job. Um, and what I think it fundamentally comes down to is I believe everyone deserves representation. So even if, you know, you're not fighting the best case or you kind of wish you were on the other side, you're there, you're helping that person who would otherwise not be able to have, you know, a, a lawyer or hopefully they wouldn't be able to put their case as well as you are, use your, you know, they're utilizing your expertise. And um, so you're assisting in that way. And if I've got a terrible case that I think is, you know, rubbish. You just have to hope that even when, you know, you do your best, uh, justice will be served and the right conclusion will be arrived at. That's a very, um, that's a very idealistic view. That's not quite my experience of what does happen. <laughs> so, so what would you say are some of the biggest struggles that you face day to day with your job? Um, imposter syndrome is definitely real um particularly at the beginning I mean so I've been doing this for a couple of years now but I was a pupil for a year um and I'm terrified pretty much all of the time in court um <laughs> it is everything feels very new and the, I mean I realized that you just had you know two junior doctors on where it really is life and death nobody you know, nobody dies if I don't do well. But, you know, the decisions that I make on the spot on that day will bind, uh, you know, my client or um, whatever going forward and potentially have huge ramifications. So every decision I make and 
a lot of the decisions you make, you're not 100% sure of. The easy decisions, <laughs> you know, they're the ones that you're really confident in, you don't think about. The ones that are more difficult or the compromises and the judgment calls that you have to make because the judges just ask you a direct question, they're the ones that are more difficult. So you, you just kind of live to learn with it in, in a sense. and, and I'd say, Yeah, I'd say, my, yeah, my main struggle and also a fear of being sued for professional negligence. That's pretty struggling. <laughs> yeah, I, Which is, I mean it's yet to happen but um <laughs> it's all right i've got i've got insurance no i'm joking that's it no genuinely there's a real fear when there's you know if i'm giving someone advice or you know making take making their case in court there's a real fear that if i mess up then that, that, that could in a very real way come back to bite me i mean i can't write that by being so super prepared for every single thing i do but that's in itself is grueling and time consuming and, you know, has, takes its toll. So what would you say is your kind of end goal? What's the progression in, in the legal profession and, and where do you see yourself? You know, the, the classic interview line of where do you see yourself in 10, 10 years time? So interestingly, um, barristers are considered to be junior barristers up until they are Queen's Council. Now, QCs are literally they're just the best barristers in the country and they are normally a huge number of years call. Um, you know, they're anywhere between 15 and 40 years call. So they've been doing it for that long. Um, and they're just the kind of creme de la creme of the bar. But really everyone else who isn't a QC is considered to be a junior barrister, which is quite wild because, you know, some of the most, the, most brilliant you know senior juniors are lumped in the same category as me um <laughs> so they don't really split it up you're either a qc or a junior barrister um in terms of where i would want to be in 10 years um i'd just like to have a i'd like to have a really well-rounded good practice i'd like to have built a good name for myself i'd like to have a better balance between work you know work-life balance but I think most people, when they're starting out forging a career, particularly as I'm self-employed, you have to kind of sacrifice in the early years uh, and you reap uh, the rewards of that in the later years when you can maybe take your foot off the gas. So that's interesting that you said you're self-employed. I think a lot of people wouldn't have realised that about barristers in the legal profession. What, what exactly does that mean for you? So it's, it's a very weird system, but most barristers are self-employed. So it's the, uh, there are some at the employed bar, but most of them are at the self-employed bar. And we sit in what are called chambers. And that is basically a collection of barristers that have decided to kind of share a name, share a brand, share clerk, share a building, share paper costs, everything. You all, you know, club together and then you create a brand and then you only allow certain other barristers into that and uh, but you're all technically self-employed so you so you know no other barrister I don't have a more senior barrister telling me you know what I can and can't do and but equally as, as I say that now I obviously if a senior barrister in chambers comes to me asking to do something of course I do it um but technically self-employed so I've got a bit more autonomy about you know what I do and don't do and when I, when I work and when I don't work and that kind of thing. And, um, how do you kind of mentally switch off from your job at the end of every day? Cause I imagine it's very high pressure. You've got, like say people's lives on the line in a different way. What, 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 what 
do you do to kind of separate yourself from that? So I, I'm probably not a good example of like a really healthy, uh, <laughs> really healthy lifestyle. I really struggle to switch off, um, not because I'm particularly worried about it, but because I can't. I can't help it. I'm almost always going through the different contingencies. But I, I find particularly difficult is the night before a big trial. So I'm like rehearsing my opening, even though I'm not, I know what I'm going to say. You know, I've got it written down. I know it in my head. Uh, there's no need for me to be rehearsing it at 3 a.m., but I am. And then, you know, in the morning in the shower, I struggle to switch off a bit, but equally uh, I think you get it comes in kind of peaks and troughs so you'll have a really busy period where you won't be able to switch off and you'll it'll be very high pressure but then that will all of a sudden finish you know the last day of a long trial will finish and you might not have anything and then you are literally are kind of waiting for your next bit of work and you're kind of euphoric because you've got through the trauma of the last trial <laughs> um, I'm also guilty if I've got emails on my phones on my iPad everything so I'm almost constantly online or contactable and being con once you make yourself available to solicitors do you say call anytime and they really take you up on that um I'm I'm not great at switching off but I don't know I like to go on long walks and go to the gym and get away that way rather than you know I think if I'm just sat at home doing nothing I'm probably thinking about work so so really it's a case of trying to just get out of your head as much as you can when you're not there to to really decompress yeah i think that would be a really i think a really healthy approach would to kind of you know when you're at work you're at work and when you're at home you're at home um but especially with lockdown and now i'm working pretty much exclusively out of my study when i'm not in court i don't even have that kind of journey to and from work to like psych myself up but then decompress and you know i don't have that physical separation so i think that's been a bit more difficult and you know you're tempted just to pop in just to check in your study whereas you know i would never just pop into chambers to check something um yeah I guess I, I reckon if I if to be honest if I really tried to separate you know work out I reckon I could do a better job but I don't really it doesn't bother me working late or you know so I have some of my best ideas at like 3am or some of my most brilliant you know submissions come to me in the shower and stuff so that's just the way I like to work um I, I you know I reckon I could probably try and be a bit smarter about taking time away but Ah, when I have a nervous breakdown in two years, you'll remind me of this podcast and <laughs> point to this moment. Definitely. Um, so obviously I want to give my listeners a bit of value. I want to give, give them something they can take away from this. We've got an advanced arguer in our midst and I want you to give me three tips that anyone can use to win an argument because I feel like this is now the time to utilise your skills. Okay. The first thing is be a human being. So maintain good eye contact. So use language that the other person can understand. Don't try and speak like a lawyer. And I, I know that that sounds crazy, but use the most simple language you can to best convey your point. Um, speak slowly, which anyone listening to me ever will know that that's something that I'm forever going to be working on. Uh, I can feel myself slowing down now as I speak. Um, speak slowly. It gives your time, it gives your brain time to think about what you're saying and it gives the other person time to actually absorb what you're saying. And you're going to be much more persuasive if the person isn't playing catch up with your last sentence. Um, third tip 
be confident. Whatever you are arguing about, argue it like it is. It goes to your core that this is the one belief that you hold in the entire world. Even if you think that you're arguing either a terrible point or a repugnant point, you have to get behind it. Because if your instructions are that you have to fight that point, and that's exactly what you have to do, come hell or high water. So you've got to fake it till you make it. Fake it till you make it. That's pretty much, that is, I don't know, if there was one secret at the bar, I think it's fake it till you make it. So all those years of study, all all those countless exams, everything, it's all boiled down to fake it till you make it and speak slowly and be confident. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. You've actually foiled me. Oh, you go. Maybe I should be a barrister. I'm in the wrong career, clearly. (laughs) Um, I've got one more question for you. um, And it's really... (sighs) What what's the one piece of advice or something you could instill on someone that's considering a career uh, in law or as a barrister? What was the one thing you'd tell them, um, you know, right as they're starting out? I think you really have to want it. I don't. I think if you're kind of umming and ahhing about like maybe I should be a lawyer or maybe I should be a this or maybe I should be a that, I think it is. It's grueling to get there. I think I, I maybe have, you know, not really sold it, but not really um, gone into the kind of reality of it, but it's a grueling process to actually um, become a barrister and then specifically to get pupillage in chambers so that you can practice. I think there's something like, I think there were like 98 pupillages last year and there were like 1700 applications. So it's a really really horrible process filled with kind of rejection and being told that you're not good enough. And I think it takes a certain character who really wants to make it to A, take that risk and B, to be knocked back because I don't know anyone that has kind of succeeded without getting a single rejection from single chambers. Um, I think you've got to kind of feel that this is the only thing that you want to do. I think if you're thinking, oh, maybe I could be a lawyer, but maybe I could be a scientist, maybe I could be a race car driver. And that's, you know, that's fine. But I think this is something you've got to really look into and commit to, because if you're at all, you know, one foot in, one foot out, then that's going to come through and you're just going to end up disappointed. Brilliant. And I mean, I've got one more question for you, actually. Uh, it's a similar question that I asked uh, Matt and Tom in episode one. But are there any perks to being a barrister? Are there any perks? Perks of the job. Um, yeah, there are. People immediately think you're smarter than you are. when they find out you're a barrister they think that you must be very smart and that's not necessarily true um other perks um i'm i I win most of my domestic arguments i don't know if that's i don't know if that really counts as a perk i don't think that um my boyfriend sees as a perk but um yeah pretty good at arguing you know outside of court uh friends family you name it come to me i'll argue with you I don't have many of them left, but at least I at least I beat them in that argument one time. Fantastic, Joe! It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today, and um, and yeah, let us know how you get on with all of your legal proceedings, uh, and look forward to following your career closely. Perfect. Thank you for having me. Once again. I want 
say a massive thank you to Joanne Toomey for coming on and giving us a rare insight into how the legal system here in the UK works. Although I must admit, I may never watch Judge Duty in the same light again. If you've enjoyed this episode, please let me know. It really helps massively if you can subscribe to the podcast. And if you're an Apple podcast listener, please leave a review and rating. If we can hit 100 reviews by December 2nd, I'll organise a giveaway prize draw for you all. If you haven't already, check out our Facebook page and support group where you can find out more about getting into law and other professions. It's at Job Hunter Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, or search the Job Hunter Podcast support group on Facebook to find out more. You can also find us on Twitter at Job Hunter Pod. We have also just launched the Job Hunter Podcast YouTube channel where you'll be able to find a more visual view of the show. When things are back to normal, we are hoping to have video recordings up on there too. If you have any success stories, I want to hear them. If you have recently found a new job or achieved some form of job-based success, then send it to jobhunterpodcasts at gmail.com and I will shout you out at the end of the show. Once again, thanks for listening to the Job Hunter Podcast. I've been your host, Tim French. I'll catch you next Wednesday. 